27. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. And now Matthew. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, this morning we're starting a new uh, series called Ripple Effect, and over the next few weeks, I'm gonna, we're going to be unpacking some core practices for our church that we talked about in the congregational meeting uh, a couple weeks ago and talking a little bit more about them, fleshing those out because they're very simple statements, but there's a lot more to them than maybe those statements led on. And so today we're going to be talking about one of the first ripples of our core practices, and that's to live honestly. What does it look like for us to live honestly? Um, did you all know there's an election this week? Did y'all know? I've been out of the country. By the way, if I fall asleep during the sermon, just run the other tape from last time I was here, and we'll just keep going. <laughs> but it, there's an election, I understand, this week. I think it, uh, we all vote this week or get your ballots in or whatever we do. Um, I'm still learning the process. Um, but one of the things that we have seen in the election process over the past 16 years is a steady rise in negative attack campaign ads. Have you noticed that? And we've noticed that over, the, over this time that um, there's been a lot of change. In fact, since the last uh, election, in, well, not the last, but in the election in 2010, or 2000, yeah, 2010, there were 450,000 different attack ads on our TVs from Labor Day to Election Day. That's just in that monthly, in those couple month period. We also find that this year, this particular year, since Labor Day, we've seen actually 569,000 different negative attack ads where the ads are attacking political opponents. And so we've, we've seen this, and this has been on the increase since 2002, where there's a lot of attacking going on in our, in our civil discourse. And we've actually seen this ramping up for a lot of reasons, and we, we all have our reasons. But I would say that this started probably back in 2002 in the political arena. And one of the things that candidates have to do in the political process is they've got to do a lot of personal image management. You know what I'm talking about? 
Like, and they have to present themselves to the world in a way that maybe isn't truly authentic because they're constantly being attacked. They're constantly being judged. And when we're attacked and when we're judged, we tend to get defensive and we tend to try and project an image of personal image management ourselves. So it's not just the politicians that do this. Can I get an get a amen this morning, right? John Ortberg, actually, in, in one of his books, a Presbyterian pastor in California, he, he called it sin management, that in the church, it's not personal image management, but what you and I do and engage in is sin management. And what we do is we tend to present ourselves in a way that is like, I, I, I'm good. I'm, I, I'm really better than you think I am, right? You know, I'm really good. And so it's not always authentic. And those outside the church pick up on this, and that's why sometimes we get labeled as hypocrites. And that's certainly something that Jesus brings up in the gospel lesson today is what, what is hypocrisy. And he talks about judging others. He says this in, in the very first verse that we saw in the gospel. It says, do not judge or you too will be judged, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I started picking up on this word measure, and I was thinking about, you know, our judgments are really our formation of what we think is right and wrong, and so in, in some ways we do need to know and have a standard of right and wrong in the world. We need to know that some things are right and some things are wrong. But in our giving our judgments, how do we measure out those judgments or those, those, that wisdom? How do we measure that out, that determination in our, in our thinking? And I thought about this, but what Jesus is actually talking about is not just judgment, judging right and wrong, but really condemnation, that when we condemn others, we form judgments and, and bring condemnation to others, that this is part of the problem, that we should not be doing this. And I started to think about what's the measure of condemnation that we hand out to people versus grace. You know, what's the measurement? You, how, how many people here know how to bake a cake? Anybody know how to bake a cake or try to, you know, I, use, I go to the store, I get the box and, you know, like add two eggs and water and I'm good. You know, I got that down. I don't do from scratch. But, but you know, when you bake a cake from scratch, there's a certain amount of sugar you need to add to make a good cake, right? And enough, and if there's too much sugar, right, like, have you ever had those cakes with, like, too much sugary icing on them, and you're, like, sick after you eat it because there's too much sugar? There's too much grace, right? And we can, we can have too much grace, but then also, if there's not enough sugar in, that, in, in our measuring out in those ingredients, what happens there? Then the taste, there's, the taste leaves a bad taste in our mouth. We don't like it. We don't want to eat it, right? And I think there's this measuring of grace and judgment that need to go together. That, and how much grace do we measure into our judgment? I want you to think about that. And do we offer grace in our judgments? Because I think that's part of what Jesus is saying, is how much grace do you measure in to your thinking and to what you're doing? And how much grace are you supplying and making available to other people as you hear and work with them? And so we do that when we bake our cakes and and we bake our judgments, right? And sometimes our judgments are actually fueled by other things. We're going to unpack that today as well and how we bake in grace to our judgments because I think we're called to be people of grace and mercy and compassion. So I thought about this kind of like tale of two churches this morning. You know, not a tale of two cities, but what does it look like to be a church of sin management? I mean, if that's what we're doing in the church, what does that look like? How does that affect us? And I think when we're a church of sin management, where we're trying to manage our sins, uh, when, what, what we try and do 
is we actually lack enough grace in our measuring. That we're, we're actually lacking grace, and because of that lack of grace, because there's more judgment than grace, we actually go, everybody's now in a place of managing their sin and presenting themselves in a way that maybe is not authentic, but more hypocritical. Because we're on the defensive, because of judgment and what other people think, and we're in this kind of like a place where we lack enough grace to really truly be honestly ourselves. And so I was thinking about this, and I stumbled across a book title that I haven't read, so don't, I can't endorse the book, but I love the title, and it's called Well-Intentioned Dragons. Don't you love the title? And it's about really the church and how sometimes that we in the church are well-intentioned dragons. And I thought that was a great image or a great metaphor at times where we think we're trying to help other people, but because of our lack of grace and mercy and compassion, we're actually breathing fire into their lives. We're actually burning people because we haven't, but we think we're doing good, right? We think that we're going to fix people, right? You know, we think we're going to fix them if we tell them things. And so we become these well-intentioned dragons. And because of that, we're, we're actually not thinking through and we lack the grace that we need. And so we go out and point out the speck in someone else's eye while ignoring our own logs. And that's what Jesus is talking about, this hypocrisy that we can engage in. And we can actually be well-intentioned in doing so and not even realizing it. You know, so let me give you an example. I was in India for the past two weeks, and you'll probably be hearing stories about India for the next several weeks in sermons, so I apologize right up front. But I'll just share one today. So I land in India and uh, was there for two weeks, but the first thing you notice when you get into India is the traffic. There are 1.34 billion people living in India in the landmass smaller than the United States. I think India could fit into the United States. But they have, what, three or four times the population that we have in the United States. So I want you to think about this. Um, one of the things, so I'm in India, and, I'm, and they drive on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> now, I want you to just notice how I phrased that. Did you notice how I phrased that? I didn't say they drove on the left side of the road. I said they drove on the what? The wrong side of the road, right? That was my judgment. You see how I do that? See how easy it is to slip into judgment? And so my immediate reaction was, they're driving on the wrong side of the road. And there's like a million people trying to go down the same road. And they're all weaving in and out of each other. And there are lines on the road, but nobody really pays attention to lines. They ignore the lines on the road. You know, in America, we stay in our lanes. They would, they don't, there's no real lane in India. And everybody's going every which way, trying to get ahead of everybody else. And it's, it's chaotic. I mean, it's, to me, my first reaction, well, this is madness. This is, this is, I can't understand it, right? So what am I doing? I am actually responding to a culture that I'm not familiar with. And so my response is what? Notice what my initial response is. Judgment. It's wrong. The way you guys drive here in India, it's wrong. We need to be more American. We need, everybody needs to stay in their lines. Everybody needs to stay in order, right? Never going to happen in India. But you know, as I spent more time there, and as I spent time and I talked to drivers that were driving us very well through this madness, I began to understand that this started to make sense to me. And I began to realize that my initial judgment was not correct. And I began, by the time I left there, going, you know, this is better than living in Seattle. <laughs> because in Seattle, we have gridlock. 
In India, there's no gridlock. Everybody gets where they're going. Traffic keeps moving all the time, and it's partly because they don't stay within the lines. But because we stay within the lines here, right, we have gridlock, we're backed up, we're waiting in traffic. We never stopped when I was in India. We never got to a point where everybody stood still. Everybody kept moving. More traffic, more people, but everything kept flowing. And I thought, how is this happening? This would not happen in America, right? So notice that how my initial judgment, right, began to change as I learned more of the story, as I learned more of the culture, as I learned more of the, why it, the reasons why this worked the way it was. So this doesn't just apply to traffic. This also applies to people. Can you all hear me all right? I feel like, or is this just my head congestion? Can you all hear all right? Okay, good. Just check. In the back, can you all hear all right? All right, good. Um, so I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about a young man who was in a youth group when I was a youth pastor, and he was acting out one night in youth group, and he was just misbehaving. And so my rule as a youth pastor was, if, you, if you're not going to listen to me, if you're not going to act right, I'm going to call your parents, and they're going to come get you, and you're going to have to leave if you can't, you know, be, be cooperative here. And so this one particular night, this young man was really acting out, and I said, look, I'm calling you know, if you don't quit and so forth, and he kept, kept on doing stuff, and I won't go into all the details about what he was doing, but I call, end up calling home, and I say, you need to come get your son. Well, I never got to talk to the parents. Parents wouldn't come to the phone when I called, but his older sister, who was 21, 22 at the time, she came to the phone. She said, okay, I'll come get him. Like, this was not a new thing, right? And so she comes, she gets him, and I'm still thinking, you know, I really want to talk to the parents and, and get their input on this and see what's how their son is doing, and I really want to have a conversation with them. So the next day, I call them in the evening and to try and talk to the parents. Again, the parents will not come to the phone. They won't talk to me. And so I began to, but the sister, again, is willing to talk to me, so I begin to ask questions. And as I begin to ask questions, and as I begin to hear more of the story of what's going on in this young man's life and in his family life and how his family is broken and his parents are in the process of getting a divorce and his sister has now become really his caretaker. As I heard more of this story, you know what happened inside of me? Grace. Compassion. So, you know, that Sunday night when I'm at youth group with the kid, I'm frustrated. I'm like, this guy, got to get his act together, right? But as I begin to learn more of his story, as I begin to hear that there's more to the story than I'm realizing in the moment, I begin to hear his story. I begin to have more compassion for him. I begin to extend more grace to him. See how judgment works? That if we stay in the place of judgment, if we don't take the time to actually ask questions and hear the rest of the story, we'll just be stuck in our judgments, and we'll lack the grace. You know, maybe I think part of being a community that moves away from sin management means that we have to become a community that forms questions more than we form opinions. That we have to think about what are the questions I need to ask? What are the stories I need to hear? How can I understand this situation better so that I can get out of my judgmentalism and move towards a place of grace and compassion with people? It's only when I learn more, it's only when I hear the other side of the story that I understand what it is to exercise and mix in and measure in more grace in my judgments. I've got to hear the whole story. Something that we lack today in community is that we lack hearing each other's stories and the whole story. And when we're engaged in sin management, what part of the story are we giving people? Just the good parts. Not the hard parts, not the dark parts, not the shadow parts, but really just the good parts. And so when 
but we lack the whole story, and the, the whole story is so important to, our redemptive, to the redemption pro, redemptive process that God wants to do in our lives. The other thing I find is that we also, in the process of judgment and sin management that we engage in, is we also lack humility. We begin, when we judge others, we're actually showing a lack of humility and self-awareness about ourselves. I came across this great quote from Wayne Cordero, pastor in, uh, in Hawaii. Wouldn't you all like to be in Hawaii right now with, at church, right? That'd be great. It's a, he says this, seldom are your critics actually disappointed with you. They are usually disappointed with themselves, their circumstances, or God. You are simply a convenient target. You are simply a convenient target. I want you to take your hand, and maybe you've seen this before. I want you to take your hand, and I want you to point your finger at somebody else in the room. Go ahead. All right, point your finger at them like you're judging them, like, ah, oh, you, you need to get fixed. We need to fix you, right? So I want, how, you've got one finger pointed at them, right? I want you to ask your, I want you to now notice how many fingers are pointed at you? Look, look at your hand. How many fingers are pointed at you? Three. How many people thought three? That's correct. Three, right? One here. Your thumb should be some, you know, maybe you did, maybe, unless your thumb's like crooked, then you've got four, right? Depending on how your thumb bends, I could, I could get four going. Um, but that is an awareness thing, right? So every time I'm pointing my finger at somebody else, every time I'm judging somebody else, it may have be saying more about me. It may be revealing something about myself. And that's what Jesus is saying. You know, as I point out the speck in someone else's eye, maybe I'm ignoring the log in my own eye, the three fingers I'm ignoring. Notice how I'm ignoring the other three fingers that are pointed right back at me. That's a lack of humility. To lack, a lack of humility is an, a lack of awareness to actually see yourself as you are, to see actually your own imperfections and your own flaws as you go point out the flaws in others or the problems with others. And are we a humble enough to look into what is going on in our own souls and discover what's going on inside of us before we go out pointing and judging and forming opinions about other people? What would that look like? What would it look like for us to really begin to focus in on ourselves, because I find that when I start to look at myself, and I look, start to look at my own uh, self-awareness and what's going on in my own life, I've got enough to work on here, folks. There, there's enough to work on just right here that I won't really have time to work on everybody else. Does that make sense? That if I really look inside of here in my own soul, in my own spiritual growth, there's enough for me to work on right there that I don't really have any time left to work on your spiritual growth, right? Or to point out your judgments about you or where you need to be fixed or where you need to be. Now, there's a danger in that because I'm a preacher and I've got to do some of that, but I'm not perfect. There's stuff I still have to deal with just like you have to deal with. And so we have to be in this place, I think, of community in a church community, a faith community, where we can actually live honestly with one another about our struggles, about where we're not measuring up, so to speak, where we need help, where we need accountability, to move from a place of judgment where we're actually inviting others to, to help us in our relationship with God, in our discipleship, in our walk with the Lord, so that we're actually inviting others into our lives and being honest about where we're at so that we can actually grow rather than just manage our sin, manage our personal image. So wouldn't it be great if we could do that? Wouldn't it be great if we can move? And I think that's really where we're all at. I think we want to move away from this place of trying to manage our personal images, and we really want to be 
be soul uh, people. We really want to be people who are growing in our soul at a soul level and growing spiritually. And I think that's only, that's only going to happen if we're able to be honest with one another. Now, Jesus also points out one problem here, and I think this is the reason we need accountability, is that, and just as we illustrated here, we can't always see the ways we need help, do, can we? That sometimes it's, we can see what other people, we can look at another person's life and go, hey, you need to change, or there's something that I would love to see changing you, right? That's easy to do. And sometimes it's hard to see it in our own selves, isn't it? That it's easier for us to see it in other people and harder to see it in ourselves. But that's where we need other people to, to speak into our lives. We need other people to come into our lives and speak to those blind spots we have. Because Jeremiah 17.9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? We have this great capacity to deceive ourselves. And that's why we, that leads us to judgment. But the flip side of this is it could also help us that we could invite other people into our lives, into community, and I would say in small groups, not in a big church setting, but probably in small groups of trusted friends and Christians where we can invite accountability and we know that people are going to love us no matter what, are going to stick by us no matter what, that even when we don't measure up, that they're going to be there for us and they're going to walk alongside of us and we can share and bear one another's burdens together. That would be true community because that's part of what we're called to as Christians not a people of sin management, not a people of personal image management, but a people who are saying to each other, I want to be accountable to becoming more like Christ. I want to become accountable to growing in my faith. I want to be accountable, and I need your help. I need others around me to help do that. You know, we've got a great legacy of this in, uh, in John Wesley. If you're not familiar with John Wesley, John Wesley is the founding father of Methodism, and uh, he started, one of the things that really spread throughout uh, <clears throat> Europe and also into America as the new country was formed, was that Wesley formed classes and bands that met weekly and daily together. And they, would, they had 22 questions they would ask each other. Can you imagine every day meeting with maybe a few people, four or five people, and you ask yourselves 22 questions around accountability in your own faith and growth in life? Here's the first question, which I think applies to today's message. First question is this, am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am better than I really am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? First question. Imagine getting up every day and answering that question honestly. To live honestly is to answer that question honestly. Am I, and basically that's getting, I mean, Wesley was asking that question, am I engaging in sin management or am I really being, am I really honest about who I am and, and where I'm at in my spiritual life because I want to grow, because I want to change, because I want to become a better man, a better woman for Christ. The second question is this, am I honest in all my acts and words or do I exaggerate, right? How many of you go to a party and, um, when you meet people, you pull out your resume. I'm not talking about your paper resume, but your mental resume, right? Because what do we get asked at parties? What do you do for a living, right? And what do we pull out? Our resume, right? And do we ever exaggerate our resume? I actually think every preacher ought to answer this question before they preach every week, actually. 
Because the temptation to exaggerate is there. I, I, if I'm honest with you, there's a tendency, there's a temptation to exaggerate, to embellish, right? And so we have to think, am I presenting myself in an accurate way, in an authentic way, in a truthful way? And I think it's a great question for all of us to be asking ourselves, is that that's part of living honestly, to be honest in how we live out our faith and to be able to answer that question. So I think about that. So we need this accountability without judgment. How do we get to that place? How do we get that place of accountability without judgment, with grace and mercy, compassion that helps us to grow in our faith? How do we become that community? So that would be a church that lives honestly, of a people who live honestly, and that people who measure out more grace than condemnation, that everything that they do, they measure out with more grace and mercy and compassion. You know, Part of what I think it means is for us to live honestly is to actually look at the Bible, learn the Bible, study the Bible together, because that's where God's revealed to us, and we can begin to actually determine, am I becoming more like Christ or not? Now, the word Bible is a collection of books. It was formed, they have the Old Testament and the New Testament, and they're called canons. And I'm not talking about military canons where we blow each other up. Like a lot of times we're using the Bible as a physical canon to blow somebody else's life up, right? That's judgment. But actually what canon means is to be a ruler or a measure. So a canon or the Bible is actually a measuring standard by which we measure ourselves, right? So what Jesus is saying and what the, the gospel is saying is that I don't go over here and measure other people by the biblical standard. Oh, yeah, you know, you're not up to, you know. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to study the Bible, study God's word, and we're supposed to determine how am I measuring up to the standard? How am I in comparison to the biblical standard? And am I becoming more like Christ? And then I, if, I, if I'm becoming more aware that I'm not living up to that, right, I invite other people into my life to help me and to hold me accountable. I, like, I want to grow. I want to grow into who Christ is calling me to be, and I need to do that. I, but the only person I'm supposed to be comparing to the standard is myself, not other people. And so if I'm doing that, then I can begin to live honestly, and I can say, hey, guys, you know, I, I'm not measuring up. You know, I, here's where I'm falling short. And that's really the key, too, as well. If we're honest about ourselves, if we have humility, the first thing we'll realize is that we all fall short. In fact, that's biblical, isn't it? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So everybody in the room, pastor included, we've all, we all fall short. And here's the other thing I think we forget in the church, is that we're all still in process of moving towards that standard, of moving towards that Christ-likeness. We're all in the process, and we're all at different stages at the process, right? How many people here go to the gym? All right, you can, this is confession time, you know. Let me ask this question. <laughs> Let me rephrase the question. How many people have ever been to a gym? <laughs> Hallelujah. Now we're getting honest about ourselves, right? Yeah, right? Yeah. So, so if you go to the gym, right, and you walk into the gym, I just want you to picture the last, the last time you were in the gym. I don't know how long ago that was, but let's just picture that. Is everybody a perfect specimen of health when you walk into a gym? I mean, when you go and you look at people around the gym, do you like see everybody, does everybody look like John Cena? I mean, does everybody like ripped and 
Or does everybody look like an Olympic uh, ath female athlete, you know, or a rower? Or what? Does anybody, I mean, what, what, what do you see when you go to the gym? Do you see perfection? No. So do you walk around the gym and go, wow, these people really need to get it together, man. Look at them. Look at the flab on that one. Look at this. You know, you don't walk around the gym, right? Hopefully, maybe you do. I don't know. But what do we do? We, we, we don't judge people at the gym. At least I don't. Try not to. But what I do is I look at people and I'm like, oh, man, we're all here together. We're all, like, working out together. We're all trying to get healthier, right? We're a spiritual gym here. We're all at different places in our, in our fitness level of spiritual fitness. And the fact that we're in the gym is we ought to be all saying amen to that, right? We ought to all be saying it's great that you're here. I'm glad you're working on things. I'm glad you're trying to grow. And I'm here to help you grow. And if you need a personal trainer, a spiritual personal trainer, then let's get you a personal trainer, right? Let's help each other. Let's inspire each other. Let's work together to grow fit, spiritually fit. And that requires us to stop expecting everybody to be perfect. Because when we expect everybody to be perfect, we just start stumbling back into sin management, right? And so we want to be a place where we all see each other rightly and on in process. If we don't do it at the gym, why do we do it at the church? We need to stop doing that. So to live honestly then is to what Ephesians 4.25 says, is to therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. We're all together in this. And we, we, can be honest, we should be a place where we can be honest with each other and can speak honestly about where we're at in our relationship with God and how we're growing or not growing or where we need help. We need to be a safe place where we can ask others and invite others to walk alongside of us and hold us accountable. And the other thing that Ephesians says, and we talked about this this summer in the series, is in 429 it says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to what? to their needs, building others up according to their needs, not my needs. Did you hear that? Because a lot of times when I'm, at, I'm thinking about how can you meet my needs, right? How can you help me? But I think we're always supposed to be looking to build each other up according to each other's needs. So if, if somebody, you know, needs to get on this spiritual elliptical, we encourage them in that, Right? We don't go over there and hog the elliptical from them so that they don't, you know, see what I'm saying? Like, we try and help them. Where do they need to be? How can I help them? How can I encourage them? How can I build them up? Because here's the thing. Neuroscience has proved that you and I can change. Did you know that? Have you ever thought I can't change, that this is never going to change, right? There's a whole new science in neuroscience called neuroplasticity, and what they've discovered is that over time we develop neural pathways and we develop habits and we build these pathways and so we keep repeating behavior based on that pathway. But you and I have the ability to change those neural pathways through repetition and through new habits and through new beliefs and through new assumptions and through new ways of thinking. And we can build another pathway, but it takes time and repetition over a period of time to build that new pathway. And so you and I actually have the ability to change the way we think and the way we behave. Do you know what gets in the way of that? Do you know what gets in the way of that? Anybody know what gets in the way of that? Stress. Because our brains also release something called cortisol, a stress release. So when you and I are stressed, 
we actually, our brains release cortisol, and that actually hinders our ability to change. Think about that. So when I go judge somebody and point out their flaws when they haven't invited me to speak into their lives, I'm creating stress. I'm actually firing off cortisol in their brains. And so I'm actually hindering their ability to become more like Christ. Think about that. So every time I'm judging somebody else or being negative towards somebody else or doing something that's not building them up according to their needs, what I'm actually doing is help, I'm not helping them to become like Christ. I'm actually doing them a disservice. I'm actually hurting them. I'm actually doing more harm than good. But if I'm encouraging, if I'm building up, I'm actually helping them to build those new pathways, to build those new beliefs, to build those new assumptions, to build their faith, to build them as growing in their faith, and I'm actually helping them to become more like Christ when I'm building others up. So you and I are doing one of two things, but in a church that lives honestly, we're looking to build each other up rather than tear each other down because we know we, our ultimate hope and goal for each of us is that we become more like Christ. So to live honestly is to really to move from a place of judgment to a place where we're building each other up in authentic community with grace and mercy and compassion. You see, for too long, I think the church has been trying to make people holy rather than inspire people to be holy. Can I get a witness? We have to move from making people holy to encouraging and inspiring people to be holy people. You know, and our world desperately needs a place like that, doesn't it? I mean, we're in this age of outrage, of hatred and bitterness and uncivil discourse. And wouldn't it be great to be a place where that doesn't happen, (laughs) where we can encourage one another, where we can be a sanctuary for one another from the world that is at each other's throats? Last night I was reminded of an old song. Well, it's old to many of us. And a woman at, the, at a banquet last night, she sang it, and it reminded me, and it was, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. And with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Are you a sanctuary? When others come to you, are you a sanctuary for them? Are you a place of encouragement for them? Are you a a person that they can be honest with, that they can share their burdens with, that they can share their struggles with and receive grace and receive mercy and receive compassion? Are you a sanctuary? Let's pray together.